Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For the last week, Worldview's been touring the Great Lakes region in the U.S. and Canada. We started in London, Ontario at the World Music Festival Sunfest, and we heard Prime Minister Justin Trudeau address people there and remind them about the strength that diversity brings. Canadians know better than just about anyone else that diversity is something that makes us strong and resilient. Sunfest reinforced the feel-good reputation that people have in the U.S. about Canada. So many people joke about fleeing to friendly Canada. But Canada has its ugly underbelly like everywhere else. And when Worldview wants a fuller picture of the Canadian reality, we turn to journalist Jesse Brown. He is the publisher of the news site Canada Land. He's host of the Canada Land podcast and has been kind enough to host us in Toronto. Great to see you in person, Jesse Brown, and thanks for having us here. Yeah, you're very welcome. Likewise, it's nice to meet you in person. I wanted to talk with you about something you were writing about the Canadian right, and there's a lot of confluences with what's happening in the U.S., and I I don't think people think about the Canadian right in a very uh, highly critical way or even really know some of the figures in the Canadian right. But there's one that you've written about, and you had a piece in the New York Times on him, and his name's Jordan Peterson, and he's a professor at the University of Toronto here. And he's gained a significant prominence on YouTube, as have a bunch of other people from Canada. And you wrote in the piece that there's more Jordan Petersons than Justin Trudeau's. Tell us a little about Jordan Peterson and who he is. I think that there is a popular rhetorical device that is Canada to Americans. You know, you, you know the meme, meanwhile in Canada, you know, yep. America's going <laughs> to hell in a handbasket. Meanwhile in Canada, we're all just enjoying government-provided health care and legal cannabis, and it's just a progressive wonderland, and everyone has very liberal values, and we welcome in immigrants, and uh, Canada is what America could be. The reality is very different, and you can look at this in a historical context. We are a former British colony. Our, our, our head of state is still the Queen of England. This idea of Canadian multiculturalism is a pretty recent concept that actually Pierre Trudeau, I think, was is most responsible for turning into official government policy. Where Jordan Peterson comes into the picture is that there has always been an enduring Canadian mainstream, and it is white and it is male. And it even plays off of this idea of Canada as a country that is more progressive than America. Jordan Peterson was a not terribly well-known professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He was somebody who liked to do as many media appearances as he could on our small provincial public broadcaster, TVO. He would talk about any number of subjects, whatever he was asked to talk about. He'd come talk about it. And he very surprisingly burst to prominence in a North American and global context when he wrongly interpreted a piece of legislation that he felt was going to force him to use gender-neutral pronouns if he was asked to. Uh, and, and this piece of legislation passed. That's right. And, and everything's still okay. He doesn't have to use any words he doesn't want to. And it was all based on a hypothetical because he says, if a student said, I prefer to be known as she or they or her, or he would do so out of just human decency, you know, as one would hope, but he doesn't like being forced to do so as he imagined this legislation would force him to do so. And that's the stand that he took uh, and and on a broadcast of TVO, our provincial broadcaster, he he let this be known, and that 
exploded his popularity. As it turns out, he was wrong about that piece of legislation. That legislation is now law. Nobody has been forced to use pronouns they don't want. This is a non-issue. But it became a symbolic thing to Americans. Some Americans feel that Canada is this progressive paradise. We should be like that. And other Americans say, look at Canada. They have uh, universal health care and it's failing. They have gone too far down the road of progressiveness. And now look at this. Professors are being forced to use language that they don't want to use. I think that had a lot to do with his initial rush to, to, to fame. And he puts it all in pretty vivid terms. He has like a Stalinist analogy that the, the left is a Stalinist state. If we allow this kind of thing, we'll go over the cliff. I, I think he successfully positioned himself as the, a voice of reason in the face of uh, political correctness gone mad that he was an old school kind of modernist. He studied totalitarian regimes and he sees that this, this path leads disaster. This is going to be a, a leftist fascism uh, if we allow political correctness to take over. I think any rational assessment of what is happening in the world now, if you were to try to find what the cost of, uh, you know, every political ideology has its excesses and its radicals, but it, it seems ludicrous to me to imagine that this is really the thumb that we're all under is this growing force of, of leftist political correctness. Well, what, what does it say about Canada if there's more of this guy than there is of Justin Trudeau? How do you, how do you suss that out? Are there really that many kind of uh, angry old white men? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that is the Canadian mainstream. It was there before this, this ideology of multiculturalism. It was, uh, it, it's there throughout it. it. It has always resisted this idea. We have always had, you know, conservative ideologies that have come in that have pushed against this idea. And, and in fact, even within that, I mean, Pierre Trudeau, if he's our progressive prime minister, he, he declared martial law in Canada in the face of pretty minor, I mean, you know, not minor to the people who suffered the separatist uh, uh, violence, but the, the, you know, this was a, a wild overreaction. So there is a, a strain of of conservatism that I think is is uh, bipartisan in Canada. We, we are a status quo country. Peace, order, and good government is our version of, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We want things to kind of stay the same. And so I feel like, you know, if you look at our, our, pre, our prime minister before Justin Trudeau, it was Stephen Harper. It's sort of this uh, Dockers wearing dad who, you know, we kind of, uh, we, we, we don't go for the big flashy charismatics um, as much as we, we want somebody who's just going to kind of keep an even keel and, a, you know, a steady hand on the tiller. And, you know, whenever things uh, seem to threaten an old guard, if we used to call it the, uh, you know, the, 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 the Laurentian elites in, in Canada, there, you know, there, there is an old Canada and it doesn't like to have its, its, its feathers ruffled. And we're really feeling that backlash these days. We're, we're, we're feeling those people kind of find a voice through, through all kinds of different wacky strains of ideology, Jordan Peterson being but one of them. I was noticing there's another person, Faith Goldie, who's very prominent and you've had interactions with Faith Goldie. She is someone who has her own uh, talk shows and things, and, and she hosted the man who might become the prime minister of Canada on one of her talk shows. Uh, can you explain who she is and what, 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 what she's about? She's a white supremacist who um, was, I think, given birth to on the media scene through uh, our attempt to mimic Fox News. We had an ill-fated project here called Sun News North, where the the, the Sun newspaper chain, a tabloid, conservative-leaning uh, newspaper chain, uh, tried with uh, a partnership involving one of Stephen Harper's former communications people to, to, to launch this uh, kind of low-budget version of, of Fox News for Canada. And it was uh, 
kind of laughable and it wasn't very well watched and it, and it, it failed, but, uh, Faith Goldie was a, was a young and I, I guess, uh, you know, classically attractive presented here as, you know, again, trying to get that Fox news model of like, let's find people who look a certain way and who have certain politics. And though that didn't succeed, it, it, it sort of uh, catalyzed this, uh, this group of people, Ezra Levant being one of them. And when Sun News Network failed, he launched the rebel, which I think was, uh, an online effort in in the vein of Glenn Beck's Blaze or the Breitbart Network, uh, where Ezra Levant, who is a well-known Canadian conservative and a uh, person who's lost some uh, a libel case and is a firebrand for certain, be it the oil sands or certain anti-immigrant uh, sentiments, he launched and he had a couple of star performers, one of whom was, was Faith Goldie, another one was uh, Lauren Southern. Uh, this was very successful. And, and the rebel found an audience amongst Donald Trump supporting Americans. It, it found an audience, a Brexit supporting British audience. Uh, it found a global audience. And and in Faith Goldie, he found a star. He ultimately fired her when she went to Charlottesville during the Tiki Torch white supremacist rally. And she appeared on a podcast called The Daily Stormer, which of course is named after Der Sturmer. Um, this is an outright Nazi podcast where she had a friendly interview with the hosts who made fun of her, her Jewish boss and his penchant for bacon if it's free. And she laughed along and uh, that was a bridge too far for Ezra Levant and he fired her and she has subsequently gone on to sort of have her own little uh, boutique media concern as a, uh, a very hateful person who I think is always trying to evade these classifications. She considers herself a white nationalist. I have no trouble calling her a white supremacist. I'm talking with Jesse Brown. He is publisher of the news site Canada Land, host of the Canada Land podcast, and we're being hosted at Puppy Machine Studios and Canada Land headquarters here in Toronto. And uh, talking about some of the right wingers up in Canada and the, the the kind of unsavory underbelly of Canada that most U.S. people don't see. Uh, so, it, but she has hosted. Uh, you know, I was surprised to read that she had hosted the the Conservative Party leader on her program. That one of his uh, consultants was on the board of this rebel media. Um, they, they, I mean, I don't know why I should be surprised because, you know, our president takes advice from media people and sure. is, on, is, uh, certainly, but it's, um, it's kind of shocking. Well, it's a good analogy. The, the, the Breitbart, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, you know, it's the same political currents and, you know, we react to American media. Ezra Levant was was studying very closely. He met with a lot of the figures from, you know, you know Mike Cernovich and all these people from, I think he might, may, may have met with Breitbart, if I'm not mistaken. So I think he was studying very carefully how that type of highly politicized radical right media was working with power. But yeah, The Rebel was launched with Hamish Marshall, who uh, he was a co-founder of The Rebel Media, and and uh, he, he's uh, part of a... Uh, Andrew Shearer's teams with the Canadian Conservatives. So there, there we, one thing that we do at Canada Land as a media criticism company is we have been sort of documenting the connections between these different parties. Now, Andrew Shearer was interviewed by Faith Goldie during a less radical time in her career, I suppose. But nevertheless, he continues to do things like, uh, you know, we had uh, our own version of the Yellow Vests here in Canada. Now, whereas that was largely a workers' movement in Europe. Here, it became a movement that was sort of split down the middle in its concerns. Half of it was about pro-oil sands representing the oil patch workers from Alberta, but also with with a lot of uh, really violent imagery and rhetoric and anti-immigrant sentiment against Trudeau, like this Trudeau is a, is a traitor who should be hanged and uh, that immigrants are somehow to blame 
for uh, the woes of the oil patch. Andrew Scheer spoke at the Yellow Vest rally where Faith Goldie also spoke. Um, now he's since, uh, I think because of pressure, made a speech about how racists aren't welcome, but he, he's, he's trying to walk a very fine line where he does not call out people necessarily by name, lest he alienate. I mean, to, to form the kind of voting block he's going to need to form government in Canada, he kind of needs moderate conservatives, financial conservatives, and he needs the racists, right, as well, uh, if, if he's going to get there. And he, he, he is, you know, very, very cautious about uh, saying anything too explicitly. I mean, you know, much like Trump, you know, will, when really forced to, he'll say something conciliatory, but then he'll say something about how, you know, there's there's good people and bad people on both sides, something like that. So, but, it, and this seems to be working. I mean, Justin Trudeau has had his own problems and we've talked about his um, kind of corruption controversies that he's got involved in. And uh, now the Andrew Scheer and the conservatives are heading the polls and we're cruising towards the next election. And the same formula is viable. Uh, potentially, yeah. I mean, the only thing that uh, I think might impede that kind of analogy is that Andrew Scheer is not the bombastic, charismatic, populist leader that that Donald Trump is. You know, he he's a you know a Canadian version, a milder and you know more genteel version of. Uh, some of the same policies. I mean, you, you'd find a more direct corollary in the current premier of Ontario. Now, you might remember Toronto's uh, crack-smoking mayor, the late Rob Ford, sort of a proto-Trump, actually, right. uh, in a lot, a lot of ways. Um, his brother, Doug Ford, is now the premier of Ontario, and he, I think, has taken the Trump playbook and put it you know, very much in terms of targeting the media, in terms of just outright falsehoods, off the cuff, uh, man of the people, doesn't, you know, sound like you're a typical politician. And, and we've seen conservative premiers pop, you know, come to power, you know, in, in supposedly this age of progressive Canada under Trudeau, the backlash has already felt, you know, Alberta kicked out Rachel Notley, the uh, new democratic party, which is a left, supposedly left party though. In Canada, it's a really strange situation. Even, you know, it doesn't matter if you're talking about the conservatives, the liberal center left, the NDP further left, or the Green Party. There's nobody saying that we should leave the oil on the ground in the oil sands. Like you can't, you can't vote for a party that doesn't want to exploit the oil sands in Canada at a federal level. So, anyhow, uh, she's out of office in Alberta, and there's uh, Jason Kenney's conservative who's leading a very Trump-like campaign to root out foreign money. Who The, the idea is that all of the environmentalist movement in Alberta is actually funded by the, uh, the George Soros left who are just trying to somehow, for business interests, uh, trick people into thinking that climate change is real or something like that. It's just an absolute falsehood that there, you know, there are environmentalist groups, some of which received small amounts of monies from, be it, you know, Greenpeace or whatnot. We're talking like a few million dollars here and there to put forth a message which is just scientifically sound that you know, greenhouse gases are threatening the planet. Um, and, and this is being made into a foreign plot against Canada's economic interests. So we're as susceptible to this sort of stuff as as Americans, if not more so. And, and in fact, we're contributing, you know, you point out Jordan Peterson and Faith Goldie, we're, we're, we're contributing a lot of these figures to global extreme right ideology and, uh, and activism and the, the media space. Now, you've had your own controversy uh, at Canada Land where, you know, once again, there's a confluence between people and institutions in the U.S. and Canada, the far-right institutions in the U.S. You got attacked in a bunch of editorials that 
were in kind of minor U.S. papers uh, as part of a fake news. Oh, there's a lot of fake news out there, and Canada Land is doing it. Uh, there was a section on Canada Land in these editorials, and you kind of rooted around and figured out who was behind the editorials. Uh, your your last podcast was really interesting about it. W- w- explain what's going on. I'll try to as best I can. <laughs> this is a bizarre little story. I mean, you know, your listeners. Uh, you know, can be forgiven if they don't know about a small media criticism a news organization called Canada Land. Uh, why would they know about that? However, the readers of, uh, you know, the, the Southeast Texas Tribune and and uh, Red State and Real Clear Policy, uh, the Observer, formerly the New York Observer, all these American um, publications with, with various conservative or Republican affiliations started to publish these pieces by uh, a variety of different authors, academics and uh, and just editorialists who are not journalists, uh, people who have had c- contributed, you know, special to the publication, uh, a very similar article. Each of them had independently put their name to a story about how fake news is a, is a cancer that is spreading across the world. And they would give a number of examples, be it from Thailand or, you know, and then they would get to the third or fourth example and they would, they would target Canada land. The pieces were resembled each other close enough to be, you know, potentially you, you, you could say that they're plagiarizing each other. They're so similar. And then these vague accusations that Canada land and, you know, calling out one of our reporters by name is some sort of, you know, focus. Of, you know, we're happy to uh, defend our journalism if people want to get into specific conversations about things that we, you know, they, they feel that we got wrong. But this was uh, nobody had approached us for comment. Specific examples were, were not really provided. And we were wondering why on earth are these papers, uh, you know, the California Globe, why would they even care about Canada land and who is behind this? We finally caught a break in trying to figure this out because we couldn't even get calls back from the authors of these pieces. All we noticed is that each of these authors had various Republican connections. One of them, it turns out, was a professor at Boise State University named Greg Hill, and they're subject to open records requests. So we found out through an open records request that he had been in touch with a guy named Todd Cranny from a company called Riverwood Strategies. Riverwood Strategies is a Republican PR and political strategy firm. He was involved in the Romney campaign and other big campaigns. And they were coordinating their efforts as to how to deal with media inquiries. When people were asking the author of this editorial, why did you write this? How do you even know about Canada Land? Uh, Did you work with anyone on this? Uh, He was uh, liaising with this Republican strategist saying, how should I handle these media requests? And the Republican strategist said, you should just ignore them. And that's the indication that we had, you know, kind of proving what we suspected, which was that this was no coincidence, that there was an organized effort to to discredit us in a very strange way. And this organization, this Republican organization is spreading around fake news stuff for what purpose? I mean, ultimately, they want to build a portfolio that discredits uh, people and media organizations that they they don't want, they don't think are good. I have no idea, but uh, that was a big question. Like, first of all, if this is a, a smear campaign against us, it's not a very effective one. Most people who are reading this don't know who we are. So I was wondering how, you know, this isn't a big bombshell that we're dealing with. Uh, what is the effect of this? And I realized at a certain point, there's a couple of effects. One is in, in a modern context, you know, as a media reporter and media critic, I'm interested in this stuff. If you are, tr- we have a lot of people we've re- done investigations and we've been critical of and we, we report the news. So, you know, there's any number of parties who might want to see us discredited. It's a shoot the messenger thing. If, if the news source is discredited, then you don't have to actually deal with the allegations. Now, this wasn't discrediting, discrediting us directly, but it was building 
a body of links that you could say, those Canada land guys have been discredited here, there, and everywhere. Look at this. All these independent, uh, you know, publications have, have spoken out against them. There's also a algorithmic side to this, where the more publications are associating us with fake news disparately and linking to, to us with that word, uh, the more that word is associated with us in Google results. So this is my best guess. And I've and I've actually seen it. I've seen some of the organizations, uh, one in particular that we investigate, sharing these articles with people saying, I know that, that we've been criticized by Canada Land, but have a look at this editorial and you'll see that Canada Land has a bad reputation. So you basically are kind of creating uh, an oppo file. Um, a bunch of resources that will help you to to do so. You know, and, and the thing is, lest this sound like I, I am imagining some vast right wing conspiracy, I might be imagining a very limited minor right wing conspiracy. I mean, this might be the the, the case of uh, one or two people sending out a a press release to, you know, if you keep a list of a few dozen people who like to write editorials and say, hey, here's an editorial, feel free to rewrite it in your own words and submit it to your local publication. Uh, and here, here are the different people that we're trying to discredit or disparage this week. Uh, this may have cost a few hundred dollars to try to ruin a small news organization. But is it, it's one of those things where, well, now it seems like a small time operation, but Islamophobia was a small time operation at one point. And there were just a couple of cranks out there smearing mainstream Muslim organizations. And, and then suddenly, voila. Well, you see this as well. There's almost like a, um, a meme laundering network where a message will, bu- will bubble up from really disreputable propaganda sites, but then it'll, you know, and, or, or Reddit. Um, and, 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 and then, you know, maybe somebody with a touch more legitimacy, maybe a Breitbart will do a story on it. And then, you know, it reaches sort of a critical mass and then maybe somebody responds to it, which makes it a bit more reportable. And then before you know it, it's on Fox news. And if it's on Fox news, then maybe it'll be in the New York times. So there is a kind of a process by which you can sort of introduce ideas and theories into the lowest levels of public discourse. And then you can kind of watch that ferment and, and, and rot and, kind of, and, and rise up and then somehow be, be laundered into public discussion. And d- does this freak you out about the state of freedom of expression and free media ultimately? I used to work for the CBC. So I used to work for a public broadcaster uh, similar to NPR here in Canada. Now I work on the internet and I have been a fierce advocate of this wonderful new age where anybody can be a news organization. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that anybody can report the news with their own smartphone. I think it's an, it's, it's a radical democratization of media. And I, 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 I wonder if I'm going to be forced to swallow my words because for many years I thought, you know, it's going to be rough and tumble. There's going to be a lot of special interest and in propaganda out there, but ultimately I would rather live in a world where there's no gatekeepers and we can, we can at least have the conversation. What I did not anticipate is the level of bad faith where it's one thing to have a conversation with a, a multitude of voices where you try to arrive through some kind of you know, process in good faith, what the truth is or, or what an informed opinion is. But when you don't know who's funding a message, when people are, are uh, employed, or, or if you don't even know if somebody's a human being, you know, part of our problem was we had bots attacking us. Uh, there was a network of Twitter robots that were, that were criticizing our work. So we're in some new black mirror sci-fi scenario here where it, it, it is not simply a matter of, of uh, many voices in the, in, the, in, the, in the public square yelling at each other. I can deal with that. But, but these sort of shadow campaigns, uh, they are concerning. And they're shadow campaigns that are kind of connected to the people who are leading our countries now. I mean, it's, it's, that, that's the reality. Yeah. I mean, the shadow campaigns have won in a sense. They, they, they uh, you know, with, with the help of 
media platforms that have been very gameable and that reward the most divisive information, uh, the most fiery rhetoric that, that have no capacity to filter for truth, um, and that, and that auto select for, uh, emotion. That is a frightening thing. It's a frightening, you know, and, and now they're in a mad scramble to prove that they are, you know, worthy of the moment and up to the challenge of, of reforming their ways. Uh, to me, it's, it's all just creating a cause to return to the first principles of journalism and a need for, for journalists to do their work of vetting and verifying information. And, and, you know, but that's, that's up to us too in journalism. We have to rebuild trust. Uh, we have to accept uh, some blame for the way people feel about us. And we need to, I think, breathe new life into our role as trusted verifiers of information. Jesse Brown is a journalist in Toronto. He is publisher of the news site Canada Land, and he demystified Canada for us in his Canada Land book. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the state of media and hosting us while we're in Toronto. It is great to see you in person again. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming here. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about no fly list kids in Canada. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're in Toronto as we conclude our trip around the Great Lakes. And we're going to talk about a subject that uh, you might not have any familiarity with. We're all familiar, though, with the no-fly list in the United States. But most people probably don't know much about the no-fly list in Canada. But it's uh, had its own peculiar problems. With us is Leila Almawi. She's a documentary filmmaker. She is uh, making a film about the no-fly list kids. Thanks very much for joining us, Leila. Thanks for having me, Jerome. Can you tell us about... Um, the situation with, that drew you to make this film? What, what is going on here? Sure. So uh, for a couple of years now, I've been doing a lot of uh, anti-oppression organizing and activism in my communities. Uh, that has a lot to do with um, pretty much the racialized experience. And um, I got to know one of the co-founders, Khadija Kaji, uh, through just mutual friends. And she's a co-founder of? Of the No Fly List Kids campaign, yeah. So she's one of the parents, and her and her husband basically started it. Um, and they'll tell you, like, it started out of, like, one tweet that, like, blew up all over. Um, they were basically at the airport. Suleiman and his son, Adam, uh, were at the airport, and uh, they were traveling to see a hockey game, and they were held up at the airport, and they wouldn't tell them why they didn't fly. And then he slid in, took a photo of uh, the screen monitor, and it said, uh, what was it, like, DHP, I think? Deemed high profile. Um, and he tweeted it and said, Air Canada, can you tell us, like, you know, why my son, my six-year-old son, is on this list, basically. A six-year-old boy. A six-year-old boy. And there have been way, way younger kids, five-month-olds. Like, you can clearly see it's a child in front of you. Um, so I, I, I got in touch with her, and I was like, you know, 
you guys have done everything from like media um, articles have been written. Uh, you know, there's there's been a lot going on. The one thing um, maybe you can you can do is as a documentary. It seems like you found out about this just through social contact, and that people figured this out really just because it was happening to so many people. It wasn't a fluke that happened to one six-year-old. The, the algorithm was essentially adding names uh, just based on their familiarity to some other name or something? Yeah, so basically uh, these are a bunch of individuals who happen to share the same names as convicted terrorists on um, Canada's no-fly list or passenger protect program. So you know, it's unfortunate because, like, for example, we have Adam Ahmed with us today. There's another Adam Ahmed who is Khadija Kaji's son. Uh, so there's several Adam Ahmeds that may be on this list, right? It seems to be the most common name that keeps coming up. Um, there is Alia Mohammed, who is in Nanaimo, British Columbia. Well, let's talk with Adam Ahmed and uh, discuss the No Fly List Kids in the campaign. Nice to meet you, Adam. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, when did you find out you were on the list. What was your what was your experience? Well, I've been on the list for as long as I can remember since I've been born. I mean, uh, and you're how old now? I'm now uh, 19 years old. Uh, so, so that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's really been a staple in my life. Uh, something that's always been there that you know I've always had to remain cognizant about. Not just me, but also my uh, two brothers, my older brother who's 21, and my younger brother who's uh, 16 right now. So. We've all been on the no-fly list, and we've all had to bear the unwarranted consequences of being falsely flagged. So, is your experience kind of typical of the no-fly kids, or is there are there different variations? There's there's different variations. I mean, uh, the big the big scare is. I mean, I've been on the list my whole life, and you know, it was different. Like being a six-year-old and a seven-year-old, you know, they know I'm not a threat, right? But as I get, I'm getting older and I'm, you know, I've, tra- I've traveled for work uh, by myself without my parents, so that, without that security blanket. Uh, so the, the fear is that as I get older, I could be subject to maltreatment in foreign countries, uh, you know, like like the Maharar situation. Explain that a little more for people. He was a Canadian citizen. He was a Canadian was- citizen that was through mistaken identity, was falsely convicted, uh, and then detained and tortured exactly. and in Syria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then and then they were like, oh, like what was it, a year later? Like, oh, sorry, wrong guy. Yeah. So uh, we don't want any of that, and especially like you know, knowing how other countries operate. You know, not every country is Canada, right? With the same, uh, you know, freedom and liberties and you know, ethic standards. So it's that's the that's been the scare nowadays. Because these lists are shared with foreign countries, so we've it's a big focus to change this. I'm talking with Adam Ahmed. He is one of the No Fly List kids, and Layla Almawi. She's a documentary filmmaker making a film about the No Fly List kids here in Canada. They've been trying to get their names off of the No Fly List for many years. You've spent your entire life on the, on the No Fly List, um, so. I wanted to hear more about uh, the number of people this affects. How many and in, in your movement and coalition? Can, I, I'm, but there's people all over Canada you've probably become familiar with and friends with over the years and uh, know now. Well, the no-fly list falsely flags people from all walks of life. You know, Canada's a really diverse country, and there's people from our group alone has, uh, you know, has individuals from all across the country from all different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, a couple of my col- uh, colleagues and uh, 
fellow peers at West, uh, Western University conducted a study uh, just of names that they're aware of that are on the list. And they did a name search. And, you know, we, we accurately concluded that there are approximately 100,000 Canadians who could who are falsely on this no-fly list. So it affects a lot of people. Because if you do this, if you, if you essentially do the math, I'm Adam Ahmed, I'm on the list. There's, let alone, there's three Adam Ahmeds in our group, right? So how many Adam Ahmeds are there in all of Canada? And we, we did that through a, a search so there's there's a lot there's lots of basic common names that are on this list and people have come forward telling us about that like that they've been on the list so we've been able we accurately conducted a study uh through a lot of background research and concluded this number and it's nice that you've created this coalition you've received a good deal of attention there were editorials and newspapers and parliament recently allocated money to apparently I, I guess you fixed the algorithm essentially yeah, yeah. and well, at 81 million dollars was allocated to fix the algorithm that's not entirely true the 81 million dollars was was uh allocated to overhaul the whole uh a whole public security bill so just the algorithm just a very small minor portion of it in which people who are wrongly on the list are able to have a, a canadian travel account uh in which they're able to uh you know not not be falsely flagged so uh, essentially that the whole Bill C-59 it holistically is receiving $81 million worth of funding. However, the list itself is just a minor part of a bigger issue. So what we're hoping that this documentary also can showcase is that if you believe in positive change and that you can really, that you can impact someone's life in a positive manner, that you can, through doing it the right way, through taking the proper steps, that you can make a change. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Layla Almawi, a documentary filmmaker. She's making a film about the no-flyless kids. And Adam Ahmed is one of the no-flyless kids. He spent his whole life on the no-fly list here in Canada and will hopefully soon be off of it. And if people want more information, if they just look for no-flyless kids, and you, you'll see a bunch of stuff on the internet. For sure. You can check out our Twitter page at no-flyless kids. That's kind of how this whole movement started. You could check out our, we have a website at noflylesskids.ca. So, uh please feel free to tweet at us ask us questions we we're more than happy to 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 engage thanks a lot for joining us thanks awesome thank you coming up after the break we'll be talking about our oceans and the health of our oceans with one of canada's finest science writers hope you can stay tuned for that don't forget, you can follow our trip to Canada and all the other stops in between at hashtag WVBus. We're at Puppy Machine Studios in Toronto, Canada. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're in Toronto as we conclude our road trip around the Great Lakes. You can see the road trip and check us out online at wbez.org slash wvbus. You can see us on social media at hashtag wvbus. 
And we've talked a lot about water and clean water on the trip, mostly the Great Lakes variety water that is so important to us. But now we're going to pull back the lens and we're going to look at the world's oceans with one of Canada's acclaimed science writers, Alana Mitchell, 10 years ago wrote her book, Seasick, The Global Ocean in Crisis. She sounded the alarm on what we're doing, what our oceans and carbon is doing to our oceans. And Alana also did a what any good science writer would do, and she turned her book into a stage play and continues to tour with Seasick. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for inviting me here, Jerome. Well, tell me uh, a little about yourself. You've came to science writing um, as the daughter of a scientist, essentially. That's right. Yeah, my dad was a biologist. Uh, he studied in the Great Plains of North America. He was a, he was an expert in the pronghorn antelope, which, uh, yeah, I mean, you you probably know about them, but uh, in my childhood, they were just they were just they were almost family members, you know. <laughs> my dad was one of the first people to really figure out some of the basics of how they lived. And you wrote for the Globe and Mail for a number of years and ended up honing back in on science? That's right. Yeah, I was a, I was a reporter at the Globe and Mail for 14 years. And in the last years of my time there, I was, uh, I think I called myself the Earth Sciences Reporter or something grand like that. But really, it was about how the systems of the planet work. What did you find out when you were doing that? Did you have aha moments when you were trying to figure out how the systems work? I, I had so many of them. I st I'm still having them. This is the strangest thing about being, I'm going to say, 20 or 30 years into this process. I still keep finding out stuff that just floors me. Like what? Well, um, well, right now I'm updating some of the science for this this book that I wrote 10 years ago, Seasick. And I had an interview uh, a little while ago with a brilliant oceanographer who's based at the University of Arizona. Her name is Joellen Russell. And I taped it because, you know, one does <laughs> these days. And and I think it's 47 minutes. And those 47 minutes just completely blew my mind because she is one of the oceanographers who's trying to figure out what's happening with the Southern Ocean, that great swirl of water that, that rings around Antarctica. And she's been you know, her whole life has been trying to figure out what's going on there. And what's going on there is changing what we understand about how the climate and the ocean interact. And therefore, it's changing our understanding about the future of the planet. And uh, 47 minutes, and I just came away totally bouleversé, as we say here. Can you reduce that 47 minutes into one little <laughs> line? I mean, it sounds like what's going on with climate and the oceans is that the climate is creating dead zones now. And, uh, well, that's true, too. Not there, particularly. Not particularly there, although the basic story is that there's this huge Antarctic circumpolar current, so this the biggest current in the world. And it, it happens because Antarctica is not bound by land. It's just an, a big island, a huge island, the bottom of the planet. And so there's this, this unbounded current that just runs around that uh, that continent. And, and as this water runs around it, it churns up all this old, dead, very, very, very old water from further down below and brings it up to the surface. And as it comes up to the surface, it sort of, as she describes, takes a great big gulp of the atmosphere um, that it comes into contact with. So all this old, you know, very old water that hasn't seen a human, a, you know, human-made atmosphere is coming up from the bottom. It's 10,000 years old, say, thousands of years old for sure, comes up and it takes a big gulp of our of our current atmosphere. And um, as it does that, it, 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 
it breathes in carbon dioxide. It basically gulps in carbon dioxide. But what happens is that all this water that is um, old and and has a very low pH is coming up to the ocean, to the top of the ocean, and it's also taking up oxygen. And so, all of a sudden, you have these bits of this of water around in the Southern Ocean, around Antarctica, that have very little oxygen in them, and it, it should be should have tons of oxygen. <laughs> I mean, it's very uh, it's a very active, dynamic part of the ocean. It should just be soaking up, and you know, it should have all sorts of dissolved oxygen. And instead, some of it doesn't, and that's been a big surprise. So this is one of the many surprises. It seems like that uh, the surprise that there is not enough life in the ocean is kind of the consistent surprise, isn't it? That, that, that our oceans are getting more different as they breathe in this carbon. The scientists call this the evil troika of climate change, uh, which by which they mean ocean change. And the evil troika is that the ocean is becoming warm, breathless, and sour. So it's absorbing just a tremendous amount of the extra heat that's being trapped against the body of the planet by all this extra carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels. So you've got all this extra heat that's in the atmosphere. The ocean is absorbing it. Um, so it's becoming warm. It's becoming breathless, meaning that, as you were saying before, it's losing some of its dissolved oxygen in dead zones and in other ways as well. And then it's also becoming sour, so it's becoming um, more acidic as it you know, collects, as it gasps in all this carbon dioxide gas. There's a chemical reaction with the water so that the water, the ocean water, is creating carbonic acid and that floods the ocean with acid and it's, it's changing the ocean's pH which is really hard to do. Yeah, I was, saying, I was just going to say, it's, it always seems like the ocean is so big, you cannot, yes. you can do anything yes. and it wouldn't change much. Exactly. And until, I'm going to say, until 20 years ago, scientists thought the same thing. They thought, they thought, oh, well, of course, they knew that the ocean was absorbing carbon dioxide from fossil fuel burning, but they said, oh, well, it's so huge, it can't make a difference. And 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they started finding out that it really is making a huge difference. So the ocean is 30% more acidic today than it was before we started burning fossil fuels. I'm talking with Alana Mitchell, and she is the author of Seasick, The Global Ocean in Crisis. It's now 10 years old now. She's updating some of the science in Seasick for Canadian uh, Geographic. We're here in Toronto, Canada. What should we do next about these oceans? Because I think most people don't even understand what's happening in the oceans. And right. people don't pull together the ideas and science and um, put it up in their head. It's, it's really hard to understand because we are so terrestrial, right? I mean, we don't really understand the ocean. Even scientists haven't haven't known for sure how to put all these pieces together of what's going on in the ocean until quite recently. I mean, one of the scientists I talked to as I was doing the updates on the science um, from Seasick said, you know, it's it's almost like the ocean has been swept under the carpet for all these for all these decades. As we've been focusing on what's happening in the atmosphere with carbon dioxide concentrations, we've not fully acknowledged or or taken into account what's going on in the ocean and, until quite recently. So the dead zones that I was mentioning earlier, there's hundreds of them. Yeah, there are about 500 now in coastal waters around the world. But that's that's only part of the picture because there are 500, you know, dead zones, meaning that there's little or no oxygen. And these, these, these parts of the ocean are pretty much devoid of life. 
Uh, the big one of the biggest is in the Gulf of Mexico, for example. It's one of the huge ones. But they're also uh, because as the water warms up in the ocean, it's absorbing less and less oxygen. So it's becoming generally deoxygenated, as the as the scientists say. And, and as well, there are these there are some dead zones that are caused by climate change, not just by chemicals flowing directly into the ocean, like in the Gulf of Mexico, where you're looking at fertilizers and, uh, you know, from upstream going into the Gulf of Mexico and creating this big dead zone. But in other parts of the of the global ocean, there are just these huge upwellings of water that create dead zones because the water is different, the, the, the structure of the current is different, the temperature is different, and that's caused by climate change. And that's really scary. When did you decide you were going to make a play about all this? How did you come to that conclusion? Because it seems like a really hard thing to wrestle with. Oh, well, I I, I never imagined I would. I mean, that that is, uh, you know, first off, it was not on my bucket list in any way. But I, I started, after the book came out, I started giving a lot of talks um, about the book. And... Uh, and the talks were terrible. They were just dreadful until I finally realized that I just needed to tell the stories of the scientists who I had uh, met with. I spent a lot of time on boats when I was writing that book. And with scientists, I mean, that's what I do. I, I travel around with scientists and uh, ask them really dumb questions and they answer me because they're really generous people. So I, I had this, I had all these stories um, from hanging out with scientists and I just started telling the stories and the talks got a little better. I gave a talk. It turned out that there was this wonderful artistic director from a theater in Toronto in the audience. His name is Franco Bonney. And uh, he came up to me a little while later and said, you know, I think we could make that into a play. And I said, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he said, and I said, would I have to memorize anything? And he said, oh, no, no, you just have to tell the stories. Wrong. 10,000 words I had to memorize. Whoa. <laughs> in order. <laughs> But um, and we had to write a bunch of new bits for it and figure out how to make it into a piece of theater as opposed to a talk because it's it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it has I think an emotional arc and it has all these things that are theater. Was that an effective way to communicate with people? What's going on with the oceans? Um, you know, it's 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 I think people go to the play who would not pick up the book or who would not go to a lecture because I give lectures on it too sometimes right. still. Um, and so I and and I think that. There is nothing like the intimacy of live theater. It is it is just so potent. You know, it's intoxicating as a member of the audience to, to be there. A little bit like live radio. You know, <laughs> it, there's just there's just a level of emotion that you can communicate um, in a theater that I think is hard to communicate any other way. We have these talkbacks afterwards. Always now, we uh, we used to not do that, and people would hang around in the in the lobby and they would be weeping, uh, and they would need to talk, and weeping not from sorrow but I think from relief uh, at what they were hearing in this play, and so we quickly realized that we had to have a talkback every time after we do the play, and now we do that, and it seems to be helpful. And you've played all across Canada. Yeah. Do you, did you come to the U.S. with the play? I've never been to the U.S. I would love to come to the U.S. with the play. Yeah, No, it's never happened. But we've been to, uh, to, to Australia twice, to the Sydney Festival and to the Darwin Festival, if you can believe. To, <laughs> How appropriate. <laughs> I know. I know. I loved it. And, and then to India. We've been to India and to parts of Europe. And I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this summer. Too. What is the message you leave people with when you tell them all this you know, it's miserably depressing what we are doing to our oceans. 
uh, and we. Uh, That's the hardest thing. I mean, how do you how do you end up with with hope about this? And uh, I mean, I've. I don't like to tell people what to do. I don't like to tell people where to go with the information. What I want to do is democratize the information. I want people to know what's at stake. I want people to know what the scientists are finding out. So for me, I, 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 I need to resist. I don't, I, I don't want to pull down a menu list and say, just tick this off and we'll be okay, because I want people to think about what our options are. So for me, the way I think about this right now is that it's, it's, it's no longer, we know that it's not a technological problem now. We know what we need to do to fix this. We know that we have the technology to fix it. It's going to be cheaper than doing anything else. <laughs> um, so it's not financial, it's not technological. And to me, that means that it's psychological, or you could say cultural. And so it's explaining it and then trying to give people cultural or psychological tools to step over the mountain. And that's what I try to do in the play. People get a change. They they get permission. They give them. They 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 need. We need to find permission to change, to make a shift. We need to know that it's possible. That it's not too late yet. It's almost too late. But it's not too late. And we need to give ourselves permission to evolve. It's very Darwinian. <laughs> I'll say. Well, Alana Mitchell, thanks very much for joining us. She is the author of Seasick, The Global Ocean in Crisis. She wrote it 10 years ago and is updating it at the end of the year for Canadian Geographic, a bunch of the science in there. And she also is a playwright now and a star in the play uh, Seasick, which has never been to the United States, but um, maybe someone who is listening to this would bring Seasick to the United States. It's great to meet you and congratulations on everything you've been doing. Oh, thanks a lot, Jerome. That's it for Worldview from Toronto, and this is going to conclude our tour of the Great Lakes region. We've had a great time. Thanks to everybody who hosted us along the way. Thanks to Puppy Machine Studios for hosting us, especially Chandra Bullikan, who opened up shop and engineered today's program. You can check out everything we did on the Worldview Bus Tour. You can follow us on social media at hashtag WVBus and check out all the pictures of everything we did along the way. It's been a way fun experience, and I hope to do it again sometime. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine, Jenny Friedland, and J. Kyle White Sullivan for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 